Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, June 14th, we're studying Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 28. Paul concludes his second missionary journey and soon begins his third, as Priscilla and Aquila instruct Apollos in Ephesus. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, thank you for having me. It's always uh, always a pleasure, always very exciting. And we get to study the book of Acts today, which you were telling me is one that not many people read. So what should we know about the book of Acts and the surrounding context as we look at part of chapter 18 today? Oh, my goodness. Right. Well, and it's it's a thing where I think I think a lot of churches from sort of different uh, denominational tradition backgrounds spend a lot more time in than we do. Although for for reasons that I I wouldn't necessarily say are are good, but the thing about Acts is, um, and when I sort of mentioned this briefly, it it doesn't really fit into the category of a gospel, but it it's not an epistle, and I think I think that honestly we've done a bit of a disservice by placing it after John as opposed to just placing it right after Luke because Acts is really Luke part two. It has Jesus in the book doing things and saying things. And so for all intents and purposes, like it, it should be a gospel. It's the second half of Luke. But since the majority of it isn't focused sort of directly on Jesus doing and saying those things, we don't really know what to do with it, and so we, we put it over there, and then um, and then it ends up getting skipped a lot. And part of the reason that it ends up getting skipped a lot is because there's there's a lot of places and and names and and history of people doing things, and it gets hard to follow. Not because it's written poorly, but because we're just not familiar with all of those things. If those names of the cities and places were places that we were familiar with, right? If they were you know, places around the U.S. or places in the Midwest, I mean, it might be easier for us to follow. If the, if the people that were there and the names were easier for us to, you know, to say, it might be easier for us to follow. But it, it ends up being difficult for us to remember. And so we end up skipping it. And it's a terrible thing to do because it, one of the great things about Acts is that it, it shows that that God and his church and what God is doing, his providence, his grace, doesn't stop after the story of Jesus stops. Like it it continues with with real people, real challenges, real conflict, real persecutions. And even though the scriptures and their inspiration stop when the Bible stops, the Lord is still doing things today. And so he's still with us. He's still with our missionaries. He's still with us as we seek to, as we seek to, to learn and to grow and to mature in the faith. 
as we seek to share with others, to serve in our vocations, like the Lord is still doing things among us. And so when we're reading Acts, you know, even though maybe we don't want to call that a, you know, a gospel, we, you know, we haven't, it's, it's still a story about, about what the Lord is doing among us, even when we can't see him with, with our eyes. Now, the book of Acts itself, um, in sort of a loose kind of way, follows a lot of, of what the church is doing, but it also follows sort of two main figures then uh, with Peter and with Paul. And of course, you know, what the Holy Spirit is doing, what the Lord is doing through these people and among the church. And in our particular section right now, we're following along with what Paul is doing. Uh, Paul, who, if, you know, you, you've, we've already gone through the history of Paul as we've been, you know, going through Acts, but Paul is sort of the de facto apostle to the Gentiles. And as Paul is going out, we sort of separate his work into three missionary journeys. As Paul goes out, most of the time, or at least for two of these, he sort of starts in Jerusalem and then goes out. And then he starts, founds the Holy Spirit through him, starts these churches. He visits these churches to sort of address problems or to strengthen and encourage them, works his way around sort of the, the, the Mediterranean, you know, Greek and Turkey, which is Asia Minor sort of region, and then comes back around towards Jerusalem. As we begin chapter 18 and our text for today, we are ending Paul's second missionary journey and beginning his third missionary journey. We are uh, in chapter 18 introduced to uh, a couple of people that will become uh, pretty important for um, the rest of the chapter, the next couple of chapters, and, um, and also introduced to a couple of issues, inconsistencies, if you will, with what's going on in the early church and how those things get brought into harmony. So a lot of times in Acts, you're going to see things that are weird, and those things are weird. And then the Holy Spirit and the apostles are making those things, taking them and making them look like what they're supposed to. So for example, we're going to have a question about baptism today. And you're going to have another question about baptism as you begin chapter 19. When you see these things, they're not quite right. And I think this is one of the reasons why other denominations, other churches really like the book of Acts is because they find examples of the practices that they have in the book of Acts. And then they're like, see, what we're doing is right. It's okay because it's right here in the Bible. This is what they were doing. No, a, a big theme in the book of Acts is taking things that are dissonant or dis, yeah, dissonant and inconsistent with what God has given us and then making those things in harmony and consistent with the gospel that's given. So just because you see something in Acts, like that doesn't mean it's an instruction to go and do that. It's just a descriptive thing that says this is what they were doing. But you should you should probably go along with what they came out to at the end, not with what they started with. So like I said, there's a lot going on in Acts. It's really exciting because you you see the Holy Spirit at work through his people. And as we begin today in chapter Acts, we're going to follow along with Paul and his second missionary journey and beginning his third. 
All right. So we are in Acts 18, beginning at verse 18. Paul's been in Corinth, and his travel continues in our text today. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had to cut his hair, or he, yeah, he had to cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. That's our text for today. That's Acts 18, verses 18 to 28. Pastor Linnell, at the beginning of our text, Paul is staying for a little while longer in Corinth. Then he decides to leave to go towards Syria. He takes with him Priscilla and Aquila, fellow tent makers. We met them at the beginning of this chapter. And then in the, at the end of this verse, at Sincrea, he had to cut his hair for he was under a vow. I think this is the first time we've seen someone under a vow in the book of Acts and the cutting of the hair. This is one of those weird things. What's going on? So the the text that we read, like it, it splits up pretty good between you've got a chunk of verses 18 through 23 and then verses 24 through 28. And so in 18 through 23, we're dealing with a little bit more of sort of a, a factual, you know, historical, this is what's happening, this is where people are going kind of thing. Um, but there's still some really interesting stuff there. And so, yeah, Paul is, Paul starts off sort of in, in Corinth and then, um, and then he's going to, he's going to leave. He's, he's going back sort of towards Jerusalem, uh, via, via Ephesus. Um, um, he's, he's in Corinth and there's a lot of good things that happened in Corinth. There's also some struggles that you guys talked about, you know, yesterday, uh, in, uh, in in Corinth, but he but he still hangs out. And so when it says after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, you sort of get this idea that even though even though the previous reading ended with sort of violence and hostility against uh, the the leader of the synagogue and against sort of the the Christians, because if you remember from from your last broadcast, like you ended with the Jews going into the ruler and, and trying to get the, you know, the, the regent or the, the governor or whatever to, to punish these people for teaching things that were against their law or against what they thought God's word would be. And he was just having none of it. And so they themselves, 
took to beating the you know one of the rulers of the synagogue and you get this idea that okay well it's it's violent it's it's sort of hostile but it seems to be the case that they were they were sort of satisfied with that beating like you don't really get the idea that it began some sort of ongoing you know persecution of christians that made it really difficult there um and you don't get that from paul's letters writing to them at the time or anything either and so paul hangs out for a couple of more days he's he's certainly you know leaving um but it, it's not like the case where he's fleeing for his own safety he's got to get out right now right so but he does decide to leave and he he's going to syria syria and he's taken with him priscilla and aquila and and so yeah we get this thing where it says he had to cut his hair for he was under a vow and there is some minor discussion about whether or not they're talking about paul or whether or not they're talking about aquila um and and part of the reason for that uh is because it's not it's just not entirely clear like you would think oh well paul is the one who's cutting his hair because this is really about Paul, right? Paul is the one that's staying for many days and Paul is the one who's setting sail. But then you also have the names Priscilla and Aquila and Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla is the wife and Aquila is the husband and Priscilla's name comes first. Well, that's weird. Her name shouldn't come first. And her name does come first a couple of times other than this, but there's always a reason for it. There's a reason that her name comes first. Either she's the one that's doing the main sort of bulk of the teaching, you know, taking the lead on things. There's a reason that her name would come first. So what's the reason that her name comes first now? Well, um, one of the things, one of the things that had been speculated is that the reason that Aquila would be the last noun there is because then sort of grammatically speaking, those pronouns would refer to Aquila. So Priscilla and Aquila, and then he cut his hair and he is referring to the last sort of nominative noun, which would be Aquila. And so Aquila is the one that cut his hair. At the end, it's really all much ado about nothing. Does it matter which one of them cut their hair? I don't think so. So then why include it at all? Why is it included that one of them at least cut their hair? Well, people might cut their hair for a number of different reasons. And if you've known somebody and they have not had a shaved head and they show up with a shaved head, you're going to ask why, right? Maybe they got lice. Maybe they just wanted to have shorter hair. But back then in the ancient world, if somebody shaved their head, it was for a reason. So why? Well, let's just deal with it. He had a vow and he was cutting his hair. That way there's no speculation. It's not that somebody fell into the worship of God that they shouldn't have. It's not that somebody is being rebuked and that they're doing penance or something else. Yeah, he made a vow and he was keeping the vow and that's why he cut his hair. And so let's, let's focus on the things that are more important. Now it might've been that he had taken some sort of like, you know, temporary vow where during his missionary journey, he wasn't cutting his hair. And now sort of at the end of his journey, he's fulfilling that by cutting his hair or whatever. People, a lot of times took vows when they went on journeys and things like that. But, but that's what's going on is they're explaining this because they don't want to bring offense. 
Um, they want to focus on the thing that's important and not cause scandal by letting people speculate about other things. And so the easiest way to do that is just to briefly address it. But it doesn't really matter what the vow is. It's just, oh, he had a vow, so he cut his hair. And that's all that it was. It's, it's really much ado about nothing. But that's the point, is we want it to not be a big deal. And so, so that's why they put that in there. Does that... Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think so. Later, when, when Paul ends up in Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, before he is arrested and eventually winds up in Rome, there's another matter of a, of a vow that comes up there, too. One that seems to have some, some Old Testament context to it is, is this, and I, again, not to make too much of it, but is that something similar perhaps going on here? Or is it maybe, again, it seems like Luke just does less with this one than he does with the one later. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, Paul, and I, I think we're, well, it doesn't matter, Paul or Aquila, I mean, they're both Jews, right? And they didn't give up, you know, everything about being, you know, Jewish. Um, and so, you know, for them to make certain vows unto the Lord or to, you know, for us, even nowadays, to to practice a spiritual discipline through fasting or, you know, or something like that, you know, those um, those outward bodily preparations are fine and good. Even our catechism says that. Right. And, and that's what this would have been, you know, a temporary Nazarite vow or, you know, or something of the like. Um, you know, and again, having uh, Old Testament significance, it wouldn't have been some sort of superstitious or cultural sort of thing. It would have been, it would have been uh, you know, a, a, a vow that would have had you know, Old Testament Jewish significance, and and he's keeping that because, you know, again, they're they're very happy to be followers of Christ, but followers of Christ, like Christians, they're not like there's not a big hard line break between Old Testament Judaism and Christianity in the New Testament, right? Like we're the the idea that nowadays that there are that there are Jews, like the Jewish faith nowadays, like in modern times, is not Old Testament Judaism. Mm -hmm. Like it's not. That's, that's you know, um, it's from the rabbinic or the, the Pharisaic tradition. It's not the temple. It's not the Sadducees. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, from, it's from the Pharisees is what that is. And so what you have then is, you know, the Old Testament Hebrew faith that that comes up and then those two things sort of branch off if you will in in the New Testament it's not that the the Jewish faith sort of continues in a line like the that's that's not the case at all so you know them keeping Old Testament vows and those sorts of things like that's fine and that's what they were doing and then you know Jesus comes to fulfill those things but we're not we're not Jews, so we, that doesn't make any sense for us to do that, and, you know. Right. So you're not going to take a trip and then cut your hair afterwards. I mean, maybe you'll cut your hair, but not because of the Well, hair. I will cut my hair, but I will certainly not shave my beard. That, <laughs> Very good. That will not happen. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm not a pretty man. <laughs> so, Pastor Linnell, after, after the mention of the keeping of the vow, the travel narrative continues. They go to ne to Ephesus. This will become a, a very important place, particularly in chapter 19. Uh, keep going as Paul travels here into verses 19 and 20. Right. Ephesus uh, as a place is, uh, 
incredibly important. It's it's important in the Bible, and it's it's important just sort of historically, right? Like, um, excuse me, Ephesus. Uh, Paul founded a you know a local congregation there, um, and uh, uh, Paul spends almost you know three years of his his missionary activity there. Uh, he sets up Timothy as sort of a uh, archbishop, if you will, over over churches for that entire territory, and uh, the headquarters is there in Ephesus. Ephesus is where John spends sort of you know his last years where he writes his, his gospel and his epistles. Um, the, the ecumenical councils later are held in Ephesus, where, you know, we deal with Nestorius and, and the like. So Ephesus is really, really important. But while they're there um, in Ephesus, uh, Priscilla and Aquila sort of take their leave, and they stay there. And Paul continues on. Uh, Paul visits the synagogue there and is received pretty well, which is unusual for Paul. Uh, and then it says in verse 20, they asked him to stay for a longer period and he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And this, this doesn't, it doesn't happen very often that way where Paul isn't driven out of the place you know, by persecutions or something like Paul, Paul leaves because he's, he's got other things to do. He's received well and Priscilla and Aquila remain behind. And then there's somebody else that's coming that, you know, we hear about shortly, but things seem to go really well in Ephesus and Paul leaves on his own accord. And when he says, I will return to you if God wills, like that's a phrase that we we might use sort of casually, but Paul is not speaking casually here. Like he means it really earnestly. They want him to stay. And he has other work that he has to do because the Holy Spirit is driving him to do these things. But it's not that he doesn't want to stay, and he's more than happy to do that if it is God's will that he's here. Um, and so... He is, he's incredibly earnest about that and, and almost praying sort of with them to say, you know, you want me to be here, you want me to stay. And if, and if God wills that, then, then let it be so. But uh, it's not apparently God's will at this particular time. And so, um, so he sails off and he lands in, in Caesarea. And then in, in verse 22, it says, he landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then he went down to Antioch and spending some time there, he departed and went on from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. It doesn't mention anything about Paul uh, going to Jerusalem, not specifically like that, but he did. So how do we know? How do we know that he went to Jerusalem? Well, there's a couple of things in the language that let you know that. And the first thing is that it says he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. Well, when it says that he went up, you that means he went up to Jerusalem. That's what it always means. Anytime you go to Jerusalem, you're going up to Jerusalem. Anytime that you leave Jerusalem, you're going down from Jerusalem. 
And part of that, sure, is that, you know, like Jerusalem, you know, a city on a hill or whatever. But but they're not actually referring geographically to those things. It's it's the direction of, you know, going to the Lord's house or where the temple would have been or something like that. It's the pilgrimage place that's you just always go up to Jerusalem. And so in the language and by this phrase, he went up to the church there and then he came down and went to Antioch. That language that language lets you know that he went to Jerusalem and then he left. So why wouldn't they just say that? Why be so cagey about it? Well, um, you know, Paul goes to Jerusalem, what, like four times? And it's not listed specifically then by word every time that he goes up to Jerusalem. But not every time that he goes up to Jerusalem is it terribly eventful. When he goes up to Jerusalem this time, there he doesn't meet anybody there's no council he's not you know it's not a big deal and much like the thing with the vow what luke wants and what the holy spirit wants is for us to focus on those things that are important but not to leave out things that happened paul goes to jerusalem but the focus is not paul going to jerusalem it's included because it happened but don't dwell on it Paul goes to Jerusalem, and one of the reasons that he goes to Jerusalem, and one might say, you know, in sort of the fulfillment of this journey or the, the, the completion of this vow, but the other reason that he goes to Jerusalem is because he's, Paul is very keen on making sure that there is a connection between the Gentile and the Jewish Christians. And if Paul is going out and starting all of these these congregations or the Holy Spirit is is planting these church seats through Paul. It's it's a big deal that we don't end up with two churches. We don't want a Gentile church and a Jewish church. We don't want the Christians to start thinking of themselves in separate groups like that. Paul, throughout all of his epistles, spends a lot of time and he is he is very adamant, right? That there's no there's no uh, Jew and Greek, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And, and so when Paul is going down to Jerusalem or going up to Jerusalem, he's going there to see the state of the church in Jerusalem. He's going there to, uh, to try and um, be a representative so that, you know, to bring word from these Gentile churches. And, you know, as Paul goes out to do some of the rest of his work, one of the big things, one of the big pushes that Paul is going to do is uh, raise money for the church in Jerusalem because they are suffering, right, through, uh, you know, famine and the like. And so as Paul is going to check on the status and make connections with the church in Jerusalem, this is also sort of a, a way in which yeah, he... Uh, is is serving that mission to not exactly humble right but it is a very humbling event to have sort of the mother church in jerusalem and then have all of your satellite churches that you know came from you eventually turn around and support you so it is important that paul goes to jerusalem but the focus isn't jerusalem the focus is what paul is doing among these other gentile based churches or churches in Gentile regions. And, and all of that is really beautifully done in a very subtle way by just saying 
he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Mm. Um, that That is a good place to take our break, Pastor Linnell. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Acts chapter 18 with Pastor Sean Linnell. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, June 14th. We're studying Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 28 with Pastor Sean Linnell. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we wrapped up Paul's second missionary journey. He goes up to Jerusalem, then down to Antioch. Verse 23, he spends some time there. Then he departs. That's where his third missionary journey begins. He starts going back to places he'd already been, Galatia, Phrygia. And then Luke turns our attention back to Ephesus, and particularly to a Jew named Apollos, who is now in Ephesus. Tell us a little bit about Apollos. So Apollos is is a, a Jew by uh, ethnicity and background, but he is a, a Jew that it's a native who is a native of Alexandria. Uh, Alexandria, a uh, city in Egypt started by Alexander the Great. There were five uh, districts, or you know, neighborhoods, or whatever. And two of those districts were populated by um, by Jews, and I don't mean that they were entirely Jewish, but they but Jews lived in in two of them and had a, a pretty significant presence. Um, <clears throat> Alexandria had an amazing library. It had um, a really brilliant philosophers. It was a, a really highly educated uh, place, and Apollos is from that tradition. So Apollos, um, he is you know he you know would have had his phd or something in in today's realm uh apollos is a, a very intelligent guy very eloquent uh, very eloquent man and competent competent in the scriptures and it says you know competent in the scriptures but but i don't know if if competent is really the the word we we might want to look to you know mighty in the scriptures some of the other translations say but the the point of including that phrase you know an eloquent man but competent in the scriptures having been instructed in the way of the lord uh apollos is is educated in all of the academia things but his academia serves his passion for the scriptures. His worldview is not informed by the philosophers of Alexandria. His worldview is informed by God's word. And and he believes that. Um, and you can tell the difference, right? There, there are lots of people who have um, PhDs in theology, and I don't know if I would describe them as theologians. They certainly have lots of fun talking points, but really they just like hearing themselves talk. And certainly 
you know, there's a lot of pastors, myself included, that kind of like hearing themselves talk, but in a, in a way that is just completely fruitless, you know? And, and Apollos is not one of those people. And so he has been instructed in the way of the Lord, uh, being fervent in the spirit. It says he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. What does that mean? Well, so John was not just some crazy loner out in the wilderness, John the Baptist. John had disciples. John taught people. And this is not just true by inference from the beginning of, you know, John's gospel, John, uh, John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, where he describes, you know, sort of, you know, uh, Andrew, for example, and, you know, and, and, and the disciples that went and followed Jesus, and then some of John's disciples became Jesus's disciples. No, even when John is in prison, right, John sends some of his disciples to Jesus. And so John is, in, in a sense, sort of a rabbi, sort of a teacher, although not a Pharisee. And when John is killed and when all of these things happen, like not everybody goes and joins Jesus's crew. It's not that they're against Jesus's crew, but they sort of scatter a little bit. They want to go and spread word of the Messiah and the like. And so you have some of these, these disciples that have apparently made their way down to Alexandria. And so uh, Apollos knows about the Messiah. He knows about these things, but he doesn't know, he doesn't know everything, right? He's, he's, not, he's not actually terribly knowledgeable about Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection and, and ascension, those things that we are baptized into, right? When you're baptized into Jesus, you're baptized into his death and into his resurrection. Well, Apollos doesn't know that. He, he, he knows about baptism, right? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, like that sort of thing. But he doesn't really know or understand about, you know, the death and resurrection of Jesus and being made one. And so, um, so it's, it's that. And it says that he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So the way of God, right? The fullness of the gospel. And they, they explained it to him more accurately. And so, um, Man, that scene must have been sort of strange. You have Priscilla and Aquila, who are tent makers by trade. And then you have Apollos, who is an academic, passionate, eloquent, very highly educated. But these tent makers are teaching and discipling him. And the amount of humility and, um, and joy that Apollos must have had, that somebody was there to explain to him more fully, even those things that perhaps he hadn't heard or known yet, um, really belies a, a, a spiritual uh, discipline and grace that um, that I think I would find difficult, mm -hmm. you know? Not perhaps impossible, for it's the Holy Spirit at work within each of us, but, but I just need you to understand, you know, as a listener, like how how difficult that must have been to 
to be somebody with a PhD who is now going to learn about the Bible and Jesus from somebody with a high school diploma, right? Um, but he does. He does. And again, um, you know, it's it's Priscilla and Aquila. And the idea here really is that Priscilla is probably the one that takes the lead on teaching here. Um, and again, both Priscilla and Aquila, uh, very faithful, very faithful people. But if you've if you've known couples where, you know, the the guy is just, you know, a little bit more quiet, not exactly shy, but he's just he's just not necessarily the guy that, you know, is the front man to the show. And that's fine. And uh, Priscilla, whether she is, in a sense, more mature or more apt in, in this sense to explain those things, you know, whatever the case, Priscilla is the one that takes the lead on this. And there has been, um, so, so, so far we've identified two potential issues. Oh, my goodness. So one is that we have this weird thing about the baptism of John versus the baptism of Jesus. And then we have this thing where we have Priscilla who is a woman aghast uh, teaching a man. How could that, how, how could we let this happen? Um, and if you, if you haven't picked up on this at home, I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit facetious here. Yeah. I think I've picked that up. Okay. Well, you never can tell. I just want to be sure. <laughs> um, so let's take them in the order that they come up in the scriptures. Um, we've already addressed a little bit the difference between the baptism of John and what it means in the scriptures versus the baptism of, of, of Jesus. There's two ways to take this. And one is that you would say something like, oh, he's been baptized the way John baptized, but he wasn't baptized the way Jesus told us to baptize. And so a person might say or might claim that Apollos needed to be baptized appropriately because he wasn't right? His baptism didn't count or something. The scriptures don't seem to imply that here. There's no record of Apollos being, and I'm putting this in major air quotes, <laughs> rebaptized, right? There's just, there's just nothing like that. And so in this particular case, it seems to indicate more along the idea that uh, Apollos doesn't fully appreciate what baptism means and gives because he is simply ignorant of some things, right? Um, what you're going to get in your next segment is actually a case where where baptism seems you know to be fulfilled or or something, and we'll let the next person deal with that, you know, perhaps more in full. But however you want to take that, even if you do want to say you really want to take a hard line on saying something like, "Well, Apollos didn't have real baptism," I don't care. The point is is that in Acts, you see things that are not right being made right. Hmm. These are not instructive passages. They are descriptive passages. So however you want to take that, and we can argue about what the right way is, right? Nobody, least of all God himself, is saying that there are two baptisms. This is not the thing. Mm -hmm. And even if you see a, a situation where, Oh, well, people are baptized, but they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. And then they get the Holy Spirit. And then there's a whole thing. No, 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 no. That's a problem. It's it's not the template for how things are supposed to work. It's a template for things being wrong. Hmm. And then again, 
there are there are denominations there are people that out there that teach well you have like a water baptism and then you have a holy spirit baptism or there's something else like that based on what these passages from acts like they're describing a problem to you and you built your whole faith around the problem i i really honestly don't understand how that happens it's a problem you know? to be sure <laughs> yeah um <laughs> But again, that's that's sort of what's going on here with with Apollos, um, and and you know again you can you can deal with the difference between or if there's a difference between John's baptism and and the Holy Spirit or Jesus's baptism the next time when that you know when that comes up in chapter 19. In this case, at the end of chapter 18, there's no indication that Apollos has anything added, quote added to baptism except a fuller understanding of what it means. And that, that is actually the way we do things. Because when we baptize infants, when Christ commanded baptism at the end of Matthew, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, sure, we baptize, right, our children, and then as they grow, we instruct them, much like Priscilla and Aquila instructed Apollos, right? That's at least half of what's going on in confirmation. We do we do confirmation on Pentecost, and I know a lot of people do it on like Palm Sunday or they do it on, you know, different things. Uh, we do it on Pentecost. And half of that right, right, is not them confirming to us the faith. It's us confirming to them that the promise and vow we made to them in their baptism, that the command of Christ has been fulfilled as he did indeed command. Like when you read that opening paragraph, the confirmation, there's two distinct parts to that. And one is saying when you were baptized, uh, we promised at the very least implicitly that we would uh, instruct you in the faith and sponsors promise explicitly to assist and make sure that that happens. And so the very first part of that opening paragraph is us confirming to you that you have indeed been instructed in the faith. Therefore, because that has been fulfilled, because that promise has been fulfilled and given to you, now joyfully give answer to what I ask you in the name of the Lord. Um, so if anything, uh, Apollos here with Priscilla and Aquila seemed to exhibit uh, sort of a, 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 a proto-relationship that resembles that. Um, and then so we get down to Priscilla and Aquila, right? Uh, do we want to say anything more on baptism before we move on to why women are teaching? No, I, I think that was a helpful explanation. And again, tomorrow's text will deal with some related issues to this. Let's let's talk about Priscilla and Aquila. Okay. So uh, I'm over here clutching my pearls that there is a woman teaching in the Bible, right? <laughs> um, so Priscilla seems to take the lead on this. Well, great. Thanks be to God for faithful, educated women. Um, Priscilla here is is uh, talking with Apollos and and sort of discipling him, and this is this is a very personal and private thing. Priscilla is not leading a congregation and standing in the stead of Christ as if she is fulfilling an office. There is there is no really no prohibition that says that you know that you can't learn from women and and really that's never that's never been you know our position 
I mean, you know, we have uh, we have deaconesses, yeah, and there's I, I didn't go through uh, the Lutheran school system, so I didn't go through any of the Concordia uh, undergraduate programs. I know that they have uh, deaconess programs, deaconess undergraduate programs. But when when I was at Fort Wayne, they had the, the master's program for the deaconesses, and I was I was just thoroughly impressed and had a tremendous amount of respect for uh, for that program, and for the the faithful women that went through that program, and they sat in many of the same uh, theology classes, the same exegetical classes that that we did. They're they're highly knowledgeable, very faithful, right? Theologically trained uh, women, and that doesn't mean that we're going to put them up and have them preach publicly in the worship service. But if you think you can't learn from them, you're really missing out. Um, and that's really what Priscilla is doing here. Priscilla is, um, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, taking the lead, in a sense, in just discipling another person. And thanks be to God for that. And Apollos, in, in learning from her in wonderful humility, I mean, this is this is really a great example of uh, uh, of humble um, discipleship between a brother and sister in Christ uh, with Apollo and Priscilla. And it's not like Aquila is off just making tents with his ears closed or something, right? You know, Aquila is there. It just seems like Priscilla is taking a little bit more of the lead, and that's fine too. Like, not every husband and wife has uh, an incredibly outgoing and gregarious, you know, strong spoken you know man like i could think of multiple people in our congregation where the, the you know the, the wife in that relationship is is much outgoing that doesn't mean that those relationships can't be faithful right there's no there's no single uh personality that everybody has to have in order to be faithful you work together um as brothers and sisters in Christ, as husband and wife, and there's no indication that like Priscilla doesn't submit to her husband or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So, so very much that. Also, later on, Apollos is the one that is going into the synagogue and making these arguments. Apollos is the one that's going out sort of publicly as the 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 definitive missionary sort of in the area. And, and in the synagogue being used by the Holy Spirit and not only his, you know, his eloquence and education, but, but having been discipled in the faith by Priscilla that's going out to do this. And so, um, honestly, the thing that, that came to mind most for me was the relationship kind of sounds a whole lot like, um, like Apollos was almost their kid, you know, because you have... Um, Priscilla and Aquila, and, and you don't really have any indication that these people had kids, that they had children. Um, I mean, it's you don't talk about their household came with them, like nothing like that is mentioned. And so they're sitting there in their tent makers, and they're 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 bringing in Apollos and sitting and, and teaching him, you know, almost like a child bringing him up in the faith. And then Apollos goes off as you know a little bit more of the missionary and pastor in that regard. So, you know, people can make much ado about whatever they want, but there really isn't any conflict between what Priscilla is doing here with, with Apollos and uh, the way that we uh, relate to one another as men and women in the church, um, our, our doctrine as far as, you know, where, 
women would teach or you know whether or not they're allowed to teach publicly it's just it's just not in conflict. It's a different situation. Right. I, I think you're right on, Pastor Linnell, and I think you, you said that very helpfully. What I find particularly encouraging about this section where Apollos learns from Priscilla and Aquila is the the absence of Paul in this case. As you pointed out at the very beginning, this part of the book of Acts largely follows Paul's journeys. He's not the main character in this little text. You've got Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus with Apollos. You get a glimpse into what's happening in the church in Ephesus while Paul's gone. And what a what a wonderful picture of the church continuing the work of the church, even when Paul's not there, that this faithful Christian couple welcomes into their home to teach this young learned student, but who needs a little bit more instruction in the in the doctrines of the church. What, what a beautiful picture. It, it's particularly encouraging for me right now. I'm, I'm working with some other pastors in our area, and we're, we're working to start a church in a neighboring town, Bastrop. And for, you know, we're splitting pastoral duties. During the week, the faithful members of that congregation are kind of on their own, in a sense. They don't have a shepherd right there in the town with them all the time. I, I find the example of Priscilla and Aquila very encouraging in that situation, particularly as, as two Christians I can hold out before them and say, look, they were doing the work of the church even when Paul wasn't there. This is what God has given you to do in this place, too. I, I, I find this very encouraging. As do I. I, I think, um, not with everybody, but there's, there's sort of a, a pull between two extremes. And one is, uh, you know, we don't need a pastor. We can sort of do everything ourselves because Holy Spirit. And the other one is a uh, pastor needs to do everything. And then we just sort of show up. And and there there is something in between. The, the church works as a body and all of the parts are necessary. And you may not be given to sort of a public ministry in the way that the office of holy ministry is, but all of us serve in our vocations um, as uh, mouthpieces and missionaries for the gospel. Not everybody is called to go over to you know to a different country or to a different place in the world, but at, you know Priscilla and Aquila weren't going on a missionary journey. They were kicked out of Rome by the emperor. And so they went with Paul for a little bit, and then they set up camp in Ephesus, and they made tents. And while they were making tents, they they shared the gospel. And, and like you said, you know, this, this very humble sort of one-on-one -on -one service that they're doing with Apollos turns into plants the seed, and the Lord uses that in a, in a much bigger way. And so, yeah, maybe Apollos is the front man who goes into the synagogue to do a whole bunch of things, but that never would have happened without a couple of humble tent makers sitting there and sharing the gospel with him in a very faithful way. Hmm. You yeah. Know? yeah, it's it's really a, a wonderful thing. And and they received the gospel again from Paul previ in the previous text because of that tent making connection, just to, to watch how the Lord used these simple, small connections to to bring the gospel to Priscilla and Aquila, now to Apollos, and then to the, the Jews in the synagogue that they might hear that Jesus is the Christ. What a what a wonderful thing. Pastor Linnell, we got about three minutes here on the morning. Help us to, to wrap up this section of Acts 18. Give us the good news. You know, I think, I think again, Acts gets sort of, a, a lot of times inadvertently, the short end of the stick, because it doesn't fit into the realm of an epistle and it doesn't really get categorized as a gospel either. But Acts is, is really important 
as a testament of what the Lord continues to do among us and among his church and how the Lord continues to work. The gospel is not absent from Acts, not only because Jesus is actually there in the beginning, right, with his promises to return and with his disciples, but because as you see the Holy Spirit at work and as you see the Lord directing his church, he's directing his church to the faith. It's not about each individual person sort of like feeling some weird warm and fuzzies. It's about people who come from lots of different walks of life, who come from either different religious backgrounds and, and, and upbringings, being brought together at different places and walks in their faith, and the Holy Spirit at work among his people and among his church to bring them into the faith, to help them understand better, to see in the scriptures what Christ has done for them, that he has not only died on the cross to save them from their sins, but that he is risen. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the prominent theme in gospel preaching throughout all of the book of Acts. And this gives us a tremendous amount of hope because no matter where we per, you know, perhaps are in, in our you know, knowledge of, of the scriptures, and no matter where people are when they come to our congregations, the congregations where God has gathered us, this shows us that the Lord is always at work to reveal his wonderful grace, mercy, and peace to those people and to us, building up his church and bringing us and keeping us in the one true faith unto life everlasting. So let us not ignore the book of Acts or perhaps get caught up in lots of names that I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce, but let us take a tremendous amount of comfort and hope to see what the Lord has done among his people in ages past and know that he continues to do that among us today. Pastor Sean Linnell is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska, helping us today with Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 28. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 18, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also use the open mic feature on the app to send us a message. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.